Hello and welcome to the Rare Disease Cell and Gene Therapy Monthly Roundup. Every month, we at Partners for Access bring to you some of the most important news developments in the orphan drug cell and gene therapy world and what they mean to you. Welcome to the show. I'm Joanna Fernandez, a consultant at Partners for Access. And today we will be discussing Brexit and its impact on the UK access landscape. It's been four months since the UK has been fully out of the European Union. And remarkably, despite all the bad press, Brexit has helped spark a slew of changes within the UK market access landscape that may potentially lead to a reform. Now, the UK government has announced a series of measures aimed at exploring a wide range of changes to the system in a bid to make the UK more attractive for new drugs. The reason for these measures is that there is an increasing concern amongst Whitehall that the UK may be in danger of losing its position as one of the top five investment destinations for new drugs. For manufacturers of orphan drugs and advanced medicinal products in particular, there are many different initiatives being proposed and introduced which may impact the ease of launching in the UK. These changes affect both the regulatory and health technology appraisal pathways. For example, the UK's regulatory agency, the MHRA, or the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency's new pathway called the New Innovative Licensing and Access Pathway, or ILAP, is one of those changes. Also, England's HTA body, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, more commonly known as NICE, has initiated a methods review. In today's episode, we will be looking at both of these measures, its impact on orphan drugs, and what manufacturers should keep in mind as they consider whether or not to include the UK in their launch strategy. To discuss this more, I'm joined by Jane Watson, a senior analyst at P4A. So Jane, can you tell us more about the incentives the MHRA have brought in to ensure that the UK is an attractive place to market drugs post-Brexit? Thank you for the introduction, Joanna. So, since Brexit, the MHRA have been responsible for the authorisation of all new medicinal products to be marketed in Great Britain. It's worth mentioning quickly here that the situation in Northern Ireland is slightly different and EU requirements will apply. So previously, many of these products, including orphan drugs, would have been reviewed by the EMA's or European Medicine Agency's centralised procedure. Only time will tell how the MHRA will cope with these new reviews, but undoubtedly, the need to go through an additional regulatory pathway when launching medicines or products in Europe will put increased burden on manufacturers. I think the UK has recognised this, and as you say, incentives are being put in place to make the UK a more attractive place to drug manufacturers. One thing the MHRA are doing is to widen licensing routes available in the UK. A conditional marketing authorisation scheme has been brought in, which is similar to the EMA scheme of the same name. In addition, a rolling review pathway and an accelerated review pathway for good quality applications have opened up. The MHRA have also joined Project Orbis. This is an international collaboration set up by the FDA in the US for a faster review of innovative cancer treatments. Importantly, for orphan drug manufacturers in particular, the promising innovative medicine designations 
along with the Early Access to Medicine scheme, will continue for the UK. You've briefly mentioned the major incentive the MHA established, and that is the Innovative Licensing Access Pathway, or ILAP. This pathway has been developed in close partnership with NICE and the Scottish Medicine Consortium, or the SMC, and the overall aim is to accelerate patient access by providing companies with enhanced regulatory and other stakeholder input during the development of their products. The big picture aim from the MHRA's perspective is to make sure patients in the UK get rapid access to cutting edge treatments, even in a post-Brexit world. That's really interesting. So how can manufacturers get their products onto this pathway? So the entry point into the ILAP is to be awarded an innovation passport. This is something manufacturers need to actually apply for. Products can enter the ILAP at multiple stages of development, including at the very early stages of development with only non-clinical data, but also those at mid-stages of development, which already have global dossiers, can enter. Both new and repurposed medicines are eligible to apply. So going back to your question, so to be eligible for an innovation passport and actually get onto the ILAP, the product must fulfill criteria defined by the MHA and where applicable, these criteria must be supported by data. In each of the criteria, there are a number of areas which means the scope seems quite broad. But for us particularly looking at orphan drug manufacturers, it looks as though there are several criteria on the list that their products are likely to fulfill. So these include the requirement for the product to treat a life-threatening condition, the fact that the medicine should be innovative, or treating a rare disease or special population, or is the medicine being repurposed for a clinically significant population. For all products, they must have the potential to offer benefits to patients and companies need to be able to show evidence of this. So Jane, have any products actually been awarded an innovation passport yet? Um, yes, so far, one product. At the end of February, the first innovation passport was awarded to Belzutifan, which is a treatment being developed by MSD for adults with von Hippel-Lindau disease. As of mid-April, the MHRA reported that there had been 22 applications for an innovation passport so far. It's not clear what stage of assessment the other applications are at, or whether the MHRA have actually rejected these applications, and if so, how the decision was made to award Belzutifan an innovation passport. We do know that these applications concern medicines for orphan diseases, as well as more common conditions such as diabetes. Another unknown is how many innovation passports the MHRA actually plans to award annually. More details of the innovation passports and the ILAP are expected to be announced in June or July of this year. So what does this actually mean for Belzutifan in terms of market access and for any other products that are awarded an innovation passport in the future? So under the ILAP, products granted an innovation passport can access something called a target development profile. The company has to apply for this separately and in this application, highlight the specific challenges and opportunities it perceives for its product. The MHRA, NICE and the SMC will then meet to discuss this and provide the company with a target development profile roadmap for product development. This is intended to be a living document 
potentially changing throughout the product's lifetime. The idea of the target development profile is to provide companies with details of how they can work with UK stakeholders throughout a product's development for evidence generation and evaluation and to address commercial and managed access agreements. Companies can request a number of tools to be included in the target development process. These are set out in a toolkit defined by the MHRA. There are eight tools at the moment and they are quite varied. The tools include inspections relating to the manufacturing process, advice on how to ensure products are regulatory ready, as well as support and guidance on innovative and flexible licensing routes. Some of these routes we discussed earlier, and it's worth noting that these are available to companies with products outside of the iLab. Mm, very interesting. And are any of these tools particularly useful to orphan drug manufacturers? So besides the innovative licensing routes, quite a few of the tools, which I think might sound in appealing to orphan drug manufacturers, have been developed in collaboration with NICE or the SMC. So one of these is the Continuous Benefit Risk Assessment Integrating Real-World Evidence Tool. This aims to provide guidance for companies to optimise data for regulatory and HDA purposes. It will include input from the MHRA and NICE, and the hope is that these stakeholders can work together with the company to explore options for long-term data collection. Additionally, for orphan drug manufacturers, the tool for novel methodology and innovative clinical trial design may be of interest. This tool is designed to create acceptance of novel methodologies for evident generation in the clinical and preclinical space, which sounds like it could be particularly relevant to rare diseases. However, even if as a manufacturer you can get all the UK stakeholders to accept a novel or innovative approach to evidence generation or your novel endpoints in a clinical trial, you may run into the problem that HTA or regulatory agencies outside of the UK do not accept this approach. So I think this leads us quite nicely into the things that NICE might be doing to attract companies in this post-Brexit era. Joanna, are you able to give us some further insights here? Sure, Jane. Well, NICE, which acts as the health technology appraisal body in England, is often viewed as having the gold standard approach for cost effectiveness markets. It has, however, one of the most rigid and challenging assessment frameworks in the world, with an almost unwavering focus on ensuring cost effectiveness thresholds are not exceeded. These CE thresholds for the most commonly used pathway, the single technology appraisal route, have not changed significantly since 2009 and if adjusted to account for inflation, have actually declined by 31%. Because of this, more often than not, manufacturers have to agree to manage entry agreements to launch in England. The NHS commercial framework for new medicines was published at the end of February this year. And while complex patient access schemes and commercial access agreements can be reached, simple discounts remain, as always, the preferred option. While this is widely known and until date has been relatively accepted as a necessary concession to gain uptake in England, Brexit has resulted in a shift in thinking by manufacturers. Launching in the UK is not as critical as it was once thought to be. This potential lack of attractiveness post-Brexit has encouraged changes to the NICE appraisal system, 
with the NICE methods review currently ongoing and finalisation expected in quarter four 2021. Okay, so what are the new changes proposed as part of the methods review? Are any of them expected to significantly impact orphan drug manufacturers? Actually, Jane, there are many proposed changes as part of the NICE methods review. Some are more likely to be impactful than others. Today, I would like to focus on three proposed changes. The first being the update to the highly specialized technology appraisal criteria. Secondly, the introduction of a new disease severity modifier. And finally, the expansion of the Cancer Drugs Fund into the Innovative Medicines Fund. So if we begin by focusing on the HST pathway, this was introduced in 2013 to support reimbursement for orphan drugs in high unmet need areas that would have otherwise not been considered an effective use of NHS resources. Therapies reviewed by HST benefit from a higher cost effectiveness threshold of up to £300,000 per quality adjusted life year gained. Since its introduction, NICE has only published 13 HST evaluations. Its target of three HST appraisals per year has actually only been met twice, once in 2017 and once in 2019. Some consider the strict eligibility criteria to be one of the reasons for the lack of HST appraisals. As a result, one of the changes proposed by NICE is to remove the current requirements that the technology must have the potential for lifelong use and that the condition is chronic. This will allow one-off gene therapies to re be reviewed by the HST route. That's interesting. Do you think this will allow for more HST appraisals? Well, I definitely think it doesn't hurt, especially if you're a gene therapy manufacturer. However, I think NICE's inability to reach the annual target stems from multiple factors, the narrow selection criteria being only one of them. Other impactful reasons could include the huge amount of resources and time needed by NICE to complete such complex appraisals, as well as the extended timelines and resources associated with delays to the process. This could be, for example, manufacturer appeals or complex pricing negotiations, which involve commercial access agreements. So while I think the proposed update to the selection criteria may allow for a wider range of therapies to be assessed by HST, namely gene therapies, I remain doubtful that it will allow for many more HSTs to be conducted annually. That's interesting. You had mentioned the introduction of a new disease severity modifier. Can you tell us a bit more about that and the impact it may have? Yes, sure. So this is another suggested change as part of the NICE methods review. Currently, therapies that meet the NICE end of life criteria, i.e. are for a small patient population who have an average prognosis of less than two years, and the suggested treatment supports an incremental survival benefit of three months or more, could be eligible for a quality modifier of up to 2.5. This modifier can, for example, change standard quality thresholds from £20,000 to around £50,000 per quality gained. As part of the proposed change, this end-of-life criteria will now be scrapped and replaced with a new disease severity criteria. Part of the reasoning behind this is because with continuing improvements in standard of care, it is becoming harder and harder for new therapies to meet the narrow criteria. Okay, and what are the new disease severity criteria? What benefits will it bring? 
Well, to be honest, the exact details of the new disease severity criteria have actually not yet been published. But having spoken to multiple UK ex-payers, the expectation seems to be that the new criteria will remain largely similar to the old criteria, with no benefits seen in the size of the quali modifier. However, the hope is that unlike the current end-of-life modifier, where eligibility is determined by binary yes-no criteria, the new modifier will capture different degrees of disease severity, as well as take into account quality of life, which the current modifier does not. These changes may therefore support more often drugs being eligible for the higher quality threshold. What about the Innovative Medicines Fund? Well, the Innovative Medicines Fund, if passed, could be one of the biggest benefits to orphan drug manufacturers out of the proposed changes. It is expected to be an extension of the current Cancer Drugs Fund, working in a similar way, but for non-oncology therapies, including orphan drugs. The CDF currently has a ring-fenced budget of £340 million. The introduction of the IMF would see an addition of around £160 million on top of this, as pledged by the Conservative government last January. We also heard from ex-payers that the concept of an innovative medicines fund was actually suggested many years ago with several iterations proposed. However, it has now been included in the UK Rare Disease Framework published in January 2021 and is subject to discussions as part of the NICE Methods Review. That, as well as the added pressure for the UK to remain an attractive market for new innovative medicines in a post-Brexit world, may be enough for the IMF to become a reality. That's really interesting. What benefits will the IMF bring to orphan drugs for non-oncology disease areas? And will it have any impact on oncology drugs that would have otherwise been eligible for the CDF? Great question. The IMF, like the CDF, will actually allow faster access to NHS funding with final guidance provided within 90 days of marketing authorization wherever possible. It will also support managed access agreements through additional data collection if there is uncertainty about the orphan drug's clinical effectiveness. According to payers, the introduction of the IMF, if it does go ahead, will not substantially affect the coverage of oncology drugs in the ring fence budget. This is because providing faster and wider access to cancer treatments will remain a priority within the NHS. Well, that's really great to hear. So the main thing I draw from our discussions today is that actually things are still very unclear. Both the new ILAP pathway brought in by the MHRA and the proposed changes by NICE lack transparency from the organisations, particularly around how decisions are or will be made. On the surface, the changes seem substantial, but it's important for drug manufacturers to be aware that they may not be as impactful as we hope. Unfortunately, at the moment, it seems to be a game of wait and see. It will be a while before we see whether the changes made by the MHRA increase patient access as intended, and the NICE methods review isn't due to be finalised until 2021. While the situation remains uncertain, it will be crucial for drug manufacturers to engage early in multi-stakeholder collaborations to keep their finger on the pulse and ensure they can promptly adapt their launch strategies as needed. Additionally, 
it will be important for manufacturers to consider what is happening in the rest of Europe, where there does seem to be a move towards increased transparency, particularly around pricing. This may affect how or when manufacturers market their medicines in the UK. Given these uncertainties in a post-Brexit world, the UK may have to work harder to ensure its position as a key early destination for global drug launch remains. And that's it for this month. For more news and analysis, go to our website www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks for listening. See you next month.